Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome back to Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Uh, this week, it's uh, we're going into Federation space. Our guest is Nicholas Meyer. He's the author. He's the screenwriter. He's the director. He's a producer. He's done many, many things. Um, and on that list, you'll find Star Trek: Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country, uh, Time After Time, the great time travel movie with H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper's characters. Uh, he's done multiple Sherlock Holmes books and uh, also adapted one of those books, The 7% Solution, which is a terrific film about Sigmund Freud trying to help Sherlock Holmes overcome his drug addiction. Uh, unexpected stuff, but that's what happens with Nicholas Meyer. He's uh, one of the people that uh, infuses a lot of really intellectual pursuits into his pop culture product, so to speak. Uh, this is a guy that also directed The Day After, the TV special that was one of the most watched TV broadcasts of the 1980s. And uh, uh, I'm excited to have him on the show today, and I hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, always a little nervous when I talk to Nick Meyer, uh, quite honestly, just because his intellect is substantial and his uh, he's one of the best read people around. Um, He's uh, adapted two Philip Roth projects uh, to the screen and done both, I think, very, very well. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about cancel culture. And we'll talk a lot about Leonard Nimoy and about Bill Shatner, both of which um, uh, reached the 90th year uh, anniversary of their birth. Uh, Bill Shatner, of course, is still with us, thank goodness. Uh, Leonard, we'll have to see in the great beyond, but uh, we'll talk about that as well. And I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, you know, this past Friday would have been the 90th birthday of Leonard Nimoy. And uh, he's somebody that uh, a lot of people have very deep feelings for, and he's had a lot of influence and, and incredible legacy. Uh, you worked quite a lot with him on some of your biggest projects or some of your more uh, well-known projects. I worked with him three times. Yeah. On Star Trek two, four, and six. And uh, and can you tell us a little bit about him? I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with him over the years, and um, I was I, I admired his intellect and his his credibility and uh, the way that he carried himself. Uh, what would you say uh, is your sort of lasting impression of the man? Well, people are complicated. And a single lasting impression must inevitably uh, take into account multiple facets of 
who people are. Leonard, uh, as I experienced him, was a highly intelligent, highly professional, highly knowledgeable guy. He was also extremely talented, um, not only as an actor and producer, but also as a photographer. There were other things that he did and did very well. He was also a man who carried a lot of emotional baggage. He had struggled long and hard to become what he was and get where he was. And those struggles had in some instances uh, left scars that he was very aware of. Um, so, you know, taken all in all, uh, his was a, a tale of uh, triumph, but also a tale of triumph achieved at some personal uh, cost, is how I would put it. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, uh, that's a very thoughtful reply. I mean, he, uh, I know he struggled for many years uh, with a number of things. Um, with, uh, when would have been the last time you think you saw him? I'm just curious. I may have bumped into him at a Star Trek convention. Uh, this is before he became ill right. or before I, certainly I was aware of any uh, illness. Um, and I'm trying to remember whether this was in London or Las Vegas or someplace that began with L. Uh, <laughs> I don't really remember. Those Star Trek conventions, that's one of the uh, peculiar time space things that happen is that no matter where they are, they're exactly the same when you're in them. So it's very hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've only, I've only been to, I think, three in my life. Yeah. Um, That's pretty great. That uh, I was so happy uh, years ago, I asked you to come out for an event and, and you came out uh, uh, for a screening of Wrath of Khan that we did, uh, you know, with the LA Times and uh, uh, over at the Egyptian. Um, oh, yes. And uh, it's it's interesting. I know that your career has taken you in so many different directions, and and I mean, uh, as an author, as a screenwriter, as a director, uh, as a producer, is probably a longer list than I I, I even know. But uh, I've admired your work across the the range of it. Thank you. Um, and uh, especially the the sense of literature that kind of has been a, a an undercurrent of it throughout, uh, a sort of a approach to literary adaptation and also just the sense of characters uh, from the page. Um, it must be, it's, it's interesting then to me that, you know, for a lot of people, you're the Wrath of Khan director and you're the Undiscovered Country director. And, you know, the, the Star Trek is so big you know, for so many people and so passionate. Um, it must be interesting for you to, to have people kind of use that as a shorthand for a career that's gone so much further, uh, so wide uh, beyond that. Well, this isn't exactly a question, but I'll free associate to it. Please. <laughs> I think that artists 
are not necessarily the best judges of their own work. Hmm. Um, first of all, we lose all proprietary authority over our creations when they're finished. Mm -hmm. uh, people will make of them what they will in the wide world. And we are, uh, relatively speaking, powerless to affect the judgments of people, of time, uh, of a, a number of variables. So when I say, uh, oh, this is what I would like to be known for, or that is what I'd prefer to be known for, if, if I'm known at all, um, it's just one opinion among many and not unique in the sense of, as I say, some confusion on the part of the artist as to what you ought to be wishing for and being reconciled in addition to what you get. Hmm. So, for example, uh, Arthur Sullivan might prefer to have been known for his uh, big Victorian oratorios or his grand opera, Ivanhoe. But basically, he's known because of the light operas that he wrote with Gilbert. He's Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, people don't, with the exception of onward Christian soldiers, associate Sullivan with, you know, and um, Tchaikovsky, who sort of bemoaned what a chore it was writing the Nutcracker, uh, but that's probably his most famous thing. And Arthur Conan Doyle, who was remarkably, almost suspiciously obtuse on the subject of Sherlock Holmes, as opposed to his lavish historical novels upon which he lavished uh, so much uh, research and time and attention uh, versus the home stories, which he on average, I think, took about a week to write one. Um, wow. And yet it is for Holmes that he is mainly remembered. And it's not, by the way, that those novels are not good. Some of them are very good. Yeah. Um, so if I'm to be known chiefly for my Star Trek films, um, I, I think I'm wise enough not to sneer or dispute something that has made so many people happy. Sure. I, I, I can only be, be grateful that that happened. Um, and I'm proud of the work that I did. I also consider myself to be very lucky. Somebody recommended a general to Napoleon and said, this guy is a really good general. And Napoleon said, I, yeah, I know he's good, but is he lucky? Hmm. And I think luck has a fair amount to do with it. Yeah, I'd like to think that talent plays into it somewhere. And I'd like also to be known for my Sherlock Holmes novels and for the day after and for my Philip Roth adaptations or the Houdini movie or the Medici television series or whatever. Sure. Um, but if I'm to be associated with Star Trek, I, I'm just grateful to be associated with anything. Sure. Well, and, and time after time after, we'll have to spring to the top of that list as well. Uh, 
that's interesting. And, and you know, the Doyle um, uh, example, I mean, that might be particularly instructive um, for uh, as of someone who's adapted Holmes, uh, adapted Doyle, I should say, uh, and, and brought Holmes back so often, um, you know, both on the screen and on the page, multiple times on the page. Uh, it, it occurs to me too, though, that like Gene Roddenberry and, and Doyle, they have a sort of commonality of just being these, you know, sort of titan figures who've created something that's gone on in just a Yeah, that's way. a very interesting observation and one that no one to my knowledge has made to me before, but I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, the, the, there's something there. You, um, I think it, because uh, you've had to be like a matador uh, dealing with the legacy and the expectations and the, all the baggage uh, good and bad that comes with dealing with uh, extending the mythologies of these two guys. Well, it's interesting. I think I was much more aware of it with Doyle mm. when I started writing my Holmes imitations than I was with Star Trek, about which I, I knew very little about Star Trek and, and in a sense cared less. I was just content to be left alone to reinvent this thing on terms which I and also to some extent my father who didn't know what it was uh, could understand. Right. Um, so I, I was not afflicted or inhibited by reverence. If somebody said where ignorance is bliss tis folly to be wise. So I wasn't wise. Right. Um, and which was probably in that instance to my advantage. I was certainly much more inhibited writing the 7% solution. Uh, Holmes meant a lot more, much more to me than Star Trek, which I barely knew what it was. Sure. The legacy of Holmes has had been echoing for decades and decades by that point. But, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek had, was coming off of. Uh, first film that didn't do that great uh, as far as, uh, you know, some people's expectations of it. So. Well, I don't, you know, it's funny because they, they, when I came on to the project, they showed me that movie um, and whatever one can criticize about it, somebody had to go first. Somebody had to go boldly. Into the breach. <laughs> not boldly go, which is not correct, but go boldly where no one had gone before and take some chances. And I certainly, um, there's much in it to admire and also much in it uh, to learn from. And that's, and that's what I did. So I'm not, a, I'm not about to really criticize it. Right. Right. No. And I, I, I wouldn't want you to really, um, the, uh, the interesting thing that I think uh, you brought to it, it especially since you had that, I mean, not even arm's length distance. I mean, you were, you were in a different room from this thing when you started. Uh, the, the great, I think, well, one of the great things that you innovated or, or uh, brought to the table was the sense of naval stateliness and naval regulations and naval heritage that really kind of, it changed the spirit of the, uh, uh, it, it, it maybe sharpened the spirit of the, the original series in a way. It gave it like a, almost a Horatio Hornblower kind of 
Well, Hornblower, there were there were two influences, one of which I didn't even realize until, I don't know, 20 years later. But Hornblower was how I first began to understand it, because I had read those books around about the time when you're discovering Sherlock Holmes when you're 12 years old or something like that. And uh, I was steeped in Hornblower, for those of your listeners who may be unfamiliar, this was a series of novels by C.S. Forrester, who also wrote The African Queen, among other things, about a British uh, captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. He's a sort of uh, ocean-going Captain Kirk, or Captain Kirk is a space-going Captain Hornblower. Um, and he has and, luck. <laughs> you talk about luck. Yeah, well, well, one of the things was that I, as a kid, I, I also loved, they made a movie of Captain Horatio Hornblower with Gregory Peck and Virginia Mayo. And um, the, the music was written by a man named Robert Farnon, English composer, F-A-R-N-O-N. And it has the horn call in the, in the movie that Gene Roddenberry... <laughs> He must have seen that movie because Alexander Courage or Courage or however he says his name clearly took that from the Hornblower movie. So I wasn't completely off base with my nautical associations. But the other influence, which, uh, as I say, I wasn't consciously, didn't click into, was a movie that I love called The Enemy Below. I don't know if you've ever seen this film. I haven't, no. Well, don't sleep. Just go find the movie. I will. Um, and the movie is a duel between a destroyer and a German U-boat. Hmm. And the destroyer captain is played by Robert Mitchum. And the captain of the U-boat is played by Kurt Jurgens. And um, the... Uh, you know, it, the battle in the Mutara Nebula, I think, is to a large degree, I latterly, you know, realized that this had stayed with me. And it's also a good trick trivia question um, because no one remembers who directed The Enemy Below. And The Enemy Below was directed by none other than Dick Powell, who was, oh. turn, turns out to have been a damn good director um wow. it's, and it's, it's a really swell swell movie is that um, his only film he directed no he also no he direct and he 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 produced a whole series of television shows with charles boyer and i'm trying to think who the other uh there were it was called four star productions and it was dick powell and charles boyer and i don't remember and and um you look it up on IMDb, you'll find it. Sure. Uh, he also famously or infamously directed a gigantic movie, cast of thousands, called The Conqueror. And The Conqueror was John Wayne oh. as Genghis Khan. Oh, yes, of course. That, that became like infamous casting uh, example. Well, it is infamous for more reasons than that. Susan Hayward is in it. And everybody involved in the making of the movie died. And they died of various cancers because they made the movie in St. George, Utah, where they were all exposed to lethal doses of radiation 
from the nuclear testing that had gone on in that area is my understanding. Uh, so John Wayne, Dick Powell, Susan Hayward, um, John Hoyt, I think. Uh, there's a whole list of, of people who succumbed and that's not even counting the below the line people who sure. worked on The Conqueror. I've never seen the movie actually. I've seen clips of it. Um, yeah, that's but anyway, true. but but you know, you Dick Powell had to be relatively uh, accomplished in order to master the logistics of something like that. I believe the movie is produced by Howard Hughes. Oh, wow, okay. Wow, that's a lot of uh, legacy for that movie. I'll have to look into that. Um, but uh, you said The Enemy Below, yeah, I will definitely yeah. uh, sure. chase that down. I'm a huge Robert Mitchum fan. Um, oh, I think he's one, one of the greatest actors that cinema produced. I mean, you yeah. look at him in the Sundowners and, and, and people thought he was Australian. Uh, and you, you, somebody said, um, actually it was Stanley Donnan who said it, and he, he said it to me. He said, there, there are two kinds of artists. He said, among the countless artistic divisions and distinctions that you can make is this one that there are artists who never let you forget that you are experiencing them. <laughs> and then there are artists, which he called the great invisibles. Mm. So when you watch Marlon Brando, you are never permitted to forget that you are experiencing Marlon Brando. It isn't Marlon, it isn't Stanley Kowalski. It isn't Terry Malloy. It's Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando as Stanley Kowalski. But then there are people like Alec Guinness, who may be the greatest actor of all, sure. um, that you just can't see it happening. It it's right in front of you, but you can't see the you can't you you, you forget. It's you totally forget. You buy into Guinness as Colonel Nicholson. You buy Guinness into, you know, uh, Prince Faisal. Um, or the man in the white suit or whatever. You know, when you're watching a, a Federico Fellini movie, you are not permitted to forget that you are experiencing Federico Fellini. But right. when you watch The Bicycle Thieves, where's the director? Where is Vittorio De Sica? He is invisible. It's just happening in front of you and you don't know how that happened. And by the way, neither Stanley Donna nor I at this moment are arguing that one of these categories is superior to another. Right. You know, the world would be a poorer place without Marlon Brando uh, and his performances in it. Um, it would also be a poorer, way poorer place without Alec Guinness or for another example, Fred Astaire. Sure. You can't see it happening. The man is not breaking a sweat. Um, and all that dancing with furniture and whatever, it, 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 it just seems to be naturally unfolding, no yeah. cuts. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know how we got off onto- Oh, Mitchum, yeah, but it's- Mitchum, yeah, you're right. you can't like see it happening. You cannot see it happening with Robert Mitchum. He's just being the person that he's supposed to be. Although it's intriguing about that, and you're right, um, and like Brando and um, uh, the, the 
the first category, those are like the signed portraits. And then there's the artists that don't, you don't see the Picasso name. Oh, that's very them. good. That's a very good analogy, I think. Yeah. I think that's very good. But the, the funny thing is, is that Mitchum falls in that category of the reason I, I, I adore him so much is it seems like his most interesting moment is after he's off screen. Uh, like you, you get the feeling that his life is less interesting when he's scripted on screen and that whatever happens to him, the minute that, that the director says cut is infinitely more interesting uh, just because of his, the, you know, the, the mythology around him, but also just the way he carries himself. It's, he seemed like a guy that was living life. Um, well, I'm sure you're right that he was an interesting character off screen. But for me, I, you know, I cherish his, the, the, the on-screen stuff, whether it's out of the past so good. or the sundowners um, or the enemy below um or heaven knows mr allison which is amazing to me um i, I think he was a remarkable talent and by the way I, you know like a lot of artists of a certain kind he was inclined i think to disparage or be apologetic about being an actor or something and it wasn't it wasn't quite a manly hmm. occupation and uh i think brando you know they they held some of these things in great um i don't know contempt but it just felt very self-conscious i th sometimes i think that's why a lot of actors do a lot of drinking mm -hmm. um whereas Bogart, for example, mm -hmm. loved being an actor, loved his craft, loved doing it, mm -hmm. and, and, and felt no reason to feel apologetic or self-conscious. It was, a, from his standpoint, a, a noble calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he didn't have that tension of the perceived vanity or, or the... the Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am the person who rescued the African queen from obscurity because it was tied up in legal problems. It was unavailable. You couldn't watch it. And, and uh, so I got involved in this project. I, I didn't save it by myself, obviously, but uh, it took three years to disentangle the legal problems and another three years to actually restore the film. Get all the leeches off. <laughs> and uh, well, if you get the, the Blu-ray that we made of the African Queen, uh -huh. there's a documentary that I co-wrote, co-directed and sort of host about the making of that movie. It's called Embracing Chaos. And we have a clip of, of Jack Cardiff, who was the cinematographer, also the cinematographer of The Red Shoes, among other things. Oh, wow. And he's uh, quoting Bogart, <laughs> saying to him, you see this face? It's taken me a long time to get this face. <laughs> I don't want you prettying me up and making me look like something we had to bleep out. Um, but uh, yeah, he was not very vain that way at all. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's like I've, I thought was Jack Nicholson's greatest attribute in many ways is his complete lack of vanity at, as far as the way that he presents himself. And there, there seems to be a lot of uh, performers who consciously or I'm sure it's not conscious, but get almost to the edge of completely giving themselves up to the performance and that uh, put stop and, and, and want to be liked right at the Oh, yeah, there's there are for sure. A lot of uh, pulled punches. Yeah. Uh, in in some actors who do that, um, I think uh, Bill Shatner, for example, who can be a very very good actor, mm -hmm. but also at a certain point, they they want to be liked and, 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 and resist letting something totally hang out. Right. Um, when we were doing uh, Houdini, the, the two night Houdini thing, Which I was very, very aware that I, I think that um, the actors playing Houdini and his wife, Bess, these were not necessarily the most pleasant or well-adjusted people in real life, Houdini and Bess. Um, but I think the actors were fighting that on the movie. It was very hard for them to be reconciled to uh, those aspects of the characters that they were playing. Yeah, yeah, because there's that, there's also the, uh not necessarily the theatricality of it, but the, the sense of uh, you, you want to be attractive as far as the, the character created. You want people to watch it. You want people to, to see it. And uh, I would imagine the, that tug between, um, you know, what the performance could be and what the uh, finished product should be, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that's, that's quite of a, one of the, the, the trickier aspects of uh, acting. I, I'm amazed by the people you've worked with through the years. I mean, I mean, you worked uh, with just giants, and and uh, it seems to me when you mentioned uh, Bill Shatner just now, he also had a birthday. I should mention that. I feel bad. I, now I didn't mention his birthday, uh, but uh, uh, you haven't mentioned mine. Christmas Eve. You got time, pal. I know. I was just. I was just. <laughs> I just want to show off. I knew your birthday. I, I just want to say that I had a that I have a birthday like <laughs> other people. Yeah. You do. You do. I'm working on one. I'm going to get one one of these days. Um, I mean, Shatner and Nimoy. I, I I wonder. Do they fit into that category of the actors? It seems to me Shatner's an actor who you never lets. He never quite lets you forget that he's Bill Shatner doing a character, and Nimoy is much more likely to have. Uh, sort of vanished into a role uh, in the way he, that- you... Leonard could vanish into a role. <clears throat> Harv Bennett, who produced uh, Star Trek two, three, and four, I think are his, um, maybe five, and five as well, actually. Um, Harv made a movie with Ingrid Bergman, a television film called A Woman Called Golda, in yeah. which Ingrid Bergman surprisingly played Golda Meir, yeah. and Leonard Nimoy played her husband. And when I when Harv told me that this was happening, I kind of went, uh, I didn't, you know, and I was so surprised by Leonard and how convincing he was 
in that role. I don't remember anything about it at this point, except my surprise that he could do that. Um, you know, and, and speaking of people who never let you forget, uh, I was three days on the set of the 7% Solution with Laurence Olivier. And yeah. Laurence Olivier was my personal private god ever since I saw Henry V when I was, you know, a kid and fell in love with fell in love with him, fell in love with Henry V, fell in love with Shakespeare. That was, that was, I was Saul of Tarsus struck blind on the road to Damascus by a, a, a vision. And you know, I suddenly realized, okay, I, cause I never understood Shakespeare in, in school. Uh, and after that, I thought, well, I'm never reading another Shakespeare play. I'm gonna see it first. And then, cause it's meant to be seen. It's sure. you're, you're supposed to watch the play and and watching him first as Henry, then as Hamlet, because I, then I saw his Hamlet movie, and then his Richard III movie, which is a corker. Uh, <laughs> and just thinking, if someone had said to me, you know, age 13 or whatever it was, that I was having this epiphany, one day, this man will be saying your dialogue. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have known what anybody was, you know, talking about. And yet for three days and lunch times too, uh, <laughs> I, I was I was with this guy. And the whole time, you know, my jaw was sort of metaphorically hitting the floor just to be around him it was astonishing. Yeah, I'll bet. And then giving him direction. I mean, it's one thing to have. I didn't direct him. Oh, that's no, her that's her brush. That's right. Uh, Forgive me for I forgot that for a second. He he um no I was just there I was just there as the writer. Um, <laughs> I was only yeah. I was only the writer. The uh, you know your adaptations of Roth fascinate me because uh, you know the uh, and and they're fantastic. Uh, I'm glad you like them. Yeah, I really really do. I, I like Elegy a lot. I I have more mixed feelings about the human stain, but I, they're respectable anyway. And sure. Roth said, you know, as long as your check goes through, you're not gonna have any problem with me. So he's a real, <laughs> he's a real writer. Right, that's funny. Um, how well did you get to know him? Uh, I didn't know him at all, oh. unless you count knowing him through his books. Right, um, right, we all know a lot about him. Uh, <laughs> some, some people would say too much. Um, I understand that now in our ridiculous cancel culture, he's being pilloried for I don't know what. Because I think he raised his hand and asked, we, "Go ahead, right here, we, start here." <laughs> we we pillory we pillory everybody now. Yeah. Shakespeare, Twain doesn't matter. Well, it's uh, at least uh, a new reign of error. Well, I, I stopped following Mark Twain on Twitter anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, my girlfriend and I are reading Huckleberry Finn out loud now. Yeah, um, yeah. And it is, is so off the charts brilliant and profoundly disturbing. And we have this notion now that art is not supposed to be disturbing. Right. Art is supposed to be wholesome. Reassuring. And, and, and homogenized and unchallenging and 
you know, the student who says, well, I'm sorry, but you know, I was really upset by what you said. I, I don't know what you're supposed to do with people like that. Do they really expect to go through life without being upset on occasion or having to deal with it or having to think critically as opposed to thinking <laughs> I'm offended? Um, what is the purpose of art anyway? Tolstoy said that the purpose of art is to teach you to love life. Wow. Doesn't say how that's supposed to work. Um, but could the purpose of art also be to teach you to endure life? Uh, could the purpose of art be to inspire you? Could the purpose of art be to teach you how to escape life? There's a lot of possibilities, um, but limiting them is limiting. It's just limiting what art can do. And art in the name of political correctness is a sort of, it, it's, it's about as incorrect as I think you can get where art is concerned. Art is supposed to challenge us and shake us up and make you question your own ideas and beliefs and see if they stand up to some kind of emotional and intellectual scrutiny. Um, re recently, there's a documentary about Pauline Kael that I, I, I think it's on Amazon, I'm not sure. Uh, called What She Said. And I grew up reading Pauline Kael, who was the movie uh, critic mm -hmm. for The New Yorker. And I loved reading her. Mm -hmm. I, I seldom agreed with her. Right. I seldom agreed with her. It didn't really matter. And I'd come away muttering to myself and but boy was i excited to find myself muttering to find myself challenged um it's uh and i think art not only criticism but but art is uh, serves its purpose if it expands you um and if you just say oh i don't want to and you can always by the way not view it you don't have to read it you don't have to watch it you don't have to listen to it um you can turn it off mm -hmm. but to say that it shouldn't exist that is a bridge too far for me i agree i agree it's uh, and and the, just the idea of child proofing the world seems kind of weird. Oh, that's me. very good. Child, yes, child-proofing art. It's just <laughs> not good. If you don't like the sharp edges, just just you know, back away slowly. You know, the world's not an amusement park that's been like created out of artificial rocks, so you don't get hurt when you sit down to have your like lemonade. Like it, it's there's sharp edges, so just pay attention. You know, it's me. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's like smothering a baby. It's just it's a sin it's of the highest order like it's i don't i don't quite understand it i think i you know provocative shouldn't be forgotten you know or, or set aside i mean that's it, 
that's one of the functions of art, as you say. Are you any relation to Anthony Boucher? I don't think so. But you know who I'm talking about? I don't. I don't. Oh. Um, he was one of the book critics, I believe, for the New York Times for many years. I mean, this is years and years and years ago. You know, I have seen that by like uh, uh, book reviews, yes, uh, but I, I'm not familiar with them. And there's a, there's actually a whole festival called Boucheron or Boucheron. That's uh, that's why I know of him because uh, people have asked me, "You've got your own convention now," and and uh, I said, "Yeah, so, it's all named for him." I think maybe I should try to uh, uh, create fraud. I think uh, there's an opportunity here to to say I am related. I, I think I'm going to get on that. Well, just tell him you are. I, I think that you are Anthony Boucher, and you, you, yeah, sure, go for it. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? What's the absolute exactly? You know, I I think that um, one of the other things I've enjoyed about your work is the the way that you take on unexpected things uh, in a very um, inter uh, entertainment based. Uh, that's a terrible question. Uh, sorry, the, the 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 not many people are are addressing the Cold War with science fiction movies or addressing you you know I mean uh, addressing uh, you look at the day after with uh, nuclear weapons you look at the Cold War with Star Trek Six and even little things like the um, in, incorporating women's lib into Time After Time uh, it seems like there's a peg that you want to hang things on to make them uh, matter in the real world, uh, to, to take these things that uh, are big issues and big topics and, and find a way to incorporate them into something that could be, in the case of something like Wrath of Comet, popcorn entertainment. Well, first of all, I think entertainment doesn't have to be a synonym for mindless right. or disposable. Right. I, I, you know, this probably come off all wrong, but I think Hamlet and Lear are are the are supreme pieces of entertainment, sure. as I would define it. I want to be engaged. I want to be moved. I want to be rattled. Um, I want to be able to uh, unable emotionally to look away. Um, Henry James said that the least demand that you can make of a work of art is that it be interesting, mm -hmm. and the most demand is that it be moving and i want to be i want to be moved and what is mindless and noisy it might be you know okay once in a while but it isn't the meal that i want to sit down to um so when i sit down to write something um i'm always writing to please myself self. I can't second guess an audience of millions of people that I've never met and try to anticipate what they want. I make a different assumption, which is that if I like it, other people will like it. And that could be an erroneous assumption and has been proved to be on occasion. But I, I, I would never tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny. Because if I didn't think it was funny, I'm not going to get the laugh. I just know it. Um, so rather than, you know, trying to imagine what other people will be pleased by, I, I, 
I try to please myself first. And if that means that there has to be sort of meat on the bones of what I'm writing about, uh, for example, to, you, know, you mentioned the, the women's lib element of time after time, but I, I, I didn't see myself as sort of adding that on or pasting that in. I just tried to imagine that woman and the times in which she found herself. She's trying to make a career. She was married, she's divorced, whatever. Um, so I imagined her as being part of the same generation that had read Betty Friedan, uh, the feminine mystique and uh, were no longer simply willing to define themselves in relation to men. Um, but it didn't seem to me that what I was doing was an add-on or, right. or, a, or a paste-on of some kind. It was organic mm -hmm. in the same way when people said you, you can't kill Spock. And I, and I said, why can't you kill him? As long as you kill him well, mm -hmm. as long as it seems to emerge out of the narrative, uh, what's wrong with that? It'll only be wrong if it's perceived as the working out of a contract in Leonard Nimoy's, uh, a clause in his, in his contract. Right. Um, not that I know that to be true, which I don't, but, right. but uh, that wasn't how I went about it anyway. It was about, you know, making a good story and making one thing lead to another with a, with a satisfying and plausible inevitability to it. And as far as Star Trek VI and the Cold War, that movie originated in a conversation that I had with Leonard Nimoy on a beach in Cape Cod, I don't know, about a year before we made the movie, uh -huh. when he, he sort of came to visit me uh, uh, in Provincetown uh, where I was with my family and he he's from Boston so it was an easy trip and he said do you have an idea for another Star Trek movie and I said me no I don't I don't get ideas it's not my department I I, I find from other people get ideas and then I I rape and pillage um, and he said well you know we've the wall is coming down in in Berlin which is when this conversation was taking place, more or less. Yeah. And he said, well, what if the wall comes down in outer space? What if the Klingons who had always been our stand-in for the Russians, which by the way was news to me, uh, <laughs> I didn't know. Uh, and he, he, he sort of said a few fragmentary sentences like that. And that was all I needed. Yeah because it was about the Cold War going in. It was never about, you know, anything else that became about the Cold War. This is where we started. And I said, oh, great. Okay, so we start with an intergalactic Chernobyl, uh, an explosion and, and then the Klingon empire is going to be no more and they all have to emigrate and, and, and everything that it's about immigration. It's, you know, and I spieled it before we were up and down the beach. All I needed was him to prime the pump in that way. Um, and as I think 
he said about Star Trek and, and about the best science fiction. The best science fiction always seems to be a reflection of what's going on at the time it was written. Mm -hmm. When you look at H.G. Wells' a novel, The Time Machine, and there's a projection in that book about the future of the human race, which if I'm remembering it correctly, according to Wells, subdivides into the Eloy and the Morlocks. Mm -hmm. And the Eloy are a sun-loving sort of flaccid uh, people who do a lot of sort of touchy-feely moaning things, but aren't particularly gifted at, at thought right. or action. The Morlocks who support their existence are a subterranean kind of monstrous uh, side that make the machinery run and, and supply the food and God knows what else. And, and occasionally will make a snatch at some of these impotent uh, creatures on the surface. And I don't know what they do with them, but probably isn't too cool. Um, but at the time Wells was writing this, Mm -hmm. And to this present day, the human race has divided. We call them the haves and the have-nots. Sure. And the 1%. And they lead these lives of privilege and decadence. And everybody else is toiling or living in automobiles or on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the, <clears throat> the people who, who make the other lives possible. They're in Amazon warehouses stuffing boxes all days and sort of forbidden to unionize or whatever. Um, so Wells was, was writing about his own time as mm -hmm. science fiction seems inevitably like all art. All art is ineluctably, ineluctably the product of the time in which it was created. Right. Mozart doesn't just sound like Mozart. He sounds like late 18th century Middle European music. Right. Renoir doesn't just look like Renoir. He looks like 19th century French Impressionism. Sure. You, you take four movies, all of which are ostensibly set in 1776. Okay. And one of them is made in... 1920, one of them is made in 1960, one of them is made in 1990, one of them is made in 2020. And you can tell in five minutes within five years of when those movies were made because they are always reflecting the circumstances surrounding their creation. They're halfway the political, social, aesthetic, intellectual biases and technological things. Is it color? Is it sound? Is it black and white? Is it foreign? Whatever. You right. can tell. In a way, they're almost, uh, each one of them, your examples would be halfway between 1776 and the year it was made as far as its its compass points. You know, Yes, uh, correct. You know, correct. And maybe even closer to the year of its making, really, than 1776. Well, you'll um, certainly, you know, it's like I, I lived um, in England for a bunch of years. And I said, when you move to, to another country, you learn about three things. You learn about the country you're in, right. you learn about the country you left by right. contrast, and you learn about how you feel about what you, about the differences. 
um, what I thought about America while I was living in London, while I, what I think about London while I'm living in London, and sort of which is more comprehensible or agreeable to me. Yeah. You know, there were things that I found that, you know, you miss when you leave home and certain things that you're accustomed to, and they don't do that there. You know, I remember calling the gas company and saying, I think I have a gas leak in my kitchen. And the guy says, do you think it would be all right if I popped around your way uh, the week after next because my wife's cousin is in your neighborhood? And I'm saying, no, no, I'm going to light a match here. And he goes, oh, oh, I take your point. I'll pop around directly, shall I? I go, yeah, you do that. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't work that way. In the That's random. That's funny. Yeah, it's, 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 I uh, don't hold this against me, but you know, I was born in Miami uh, and grew up in Florida, uh, but I didn't become a Floridian until I left. Like in a way, you, it, it's what you're saying is like, you don't know it until you leave it and then you can judge the distance you've traveled or, or either literally or figuratively, or it's like someone on the shore looking at a boat and then being first on the boat looking at the shore. It's, well, it's the key line from Brigadoon. Mm -hmm. you know, God, do we, why do we have to lose the things we, love before we realize how much we love them I, i'm paraphrasing it but. it doesn't work with florida though <laughs> no it, it uh florida i don't get but that's just me oh i escaped so uh, you know uh points for that most people go to miami to die i actually started there it's really it's really kind of unusual i want to I, I think i want to go to paris to die but that's just me i thought good americans when they die go to paris right Right. Or Venice, uh, like that's things go wrong. Um, you know, uh, the, when we started this podcast, uh, just, you know, this is like the 24th or 25th episode we did, but Malcolm McDowell was the first guest. Uh, oh, wow. Um, and I had interviewed him on stage a few times, once over at the Academy um, for like a long tribute thing. I think you might have been there. I'm, I thought I saw you there um, years ago. Um, but I also did the interview with him and Mary for, uh, got them back together for time after time um, at the Egyptian. That and one I remember. I was there, that, I was there. I, I did that interview and, and uh, boy, it was, that, was a, that was a fun night. Uh, the, the interesting thing to me, or the thing that you remember isn't always the most important thing, but that Ted Danson was sitting right in front of me the entire time. So like, I felt like I was talking to Ted Danson who's in the audience while interviewing his wife and her ex-husband. And it was a very, very interesting dynamic. Very Noel Coward. <laughs> it really was. And, I, um, and believe me, I put the coward in Noel uh, as, on that one because I was nervous. Um, I don't think Malcolm would protest or dispute the fact if I said that he prepared himself for that event by uh, getting some liquid courage because uh, that, that, uh, that added a whole nother wrinkle to it for me. <laughs> it was just a, it was a tense night. That's funny, I, I just had a good time watching. Oh, it, was, it turned out great. You know, tension is good. Uh, it, it, it was tension that hopefully nobody else noticed. It was just my, you know, just the apprehension of everything going sideways. I, I've had very good luck on stage doing interviews, but I had a couple go sideways. Um, and one of the kind of things that always made me sad, I was interviewing um, uh, 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 Walter Koenig uh, from Star Trek 
also at the Egyptian and introduced him and he, he came running up the stage and fell badly and landed and it was just, a, a, he was fine, everything was okay, but it's really hard um, to deal with that kind of a start. It's a tough start for an interview when, when the person- also, if, he, if he got up and continued the interview, you, you were doing great. Yes, exactly. I, I and I there were so many, you know, things I could, I wanted to say and just resisted all of them. As far as like trying to soften the moment or, you know, um, I certainly not make light of it, but uh, relieve the stress in the room or something like that. But uh, you never know what to do and things like that. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, as far as uh, uh, you know, one of the projects that I've fascinated with, we talked a little bit about is, is your work with Holmes. Um, when did when did you first become a Sherlock Holmes fan? Was that, did you re read him quite young? Did the Doyle? I must have been about 11 when my, when my dad gave me the complete one volume, all 60 stories, 56 short stories and four novellas. Um, and I started with a study in Scarlet. Um, and you get to this moment, you know, picture yourself, you're 11 years old, you don't know anything. And you're gobbling up this story about Sherlock Holmes and London and whatever. And then you turn the page. Yeah. And you're in Utah. And I'm going, what, uh -huh. what, what? And I, all I can think of is that the printer glued together the wrong two books right but then because i don't know what i'm just sitting in the chair i keep reading and eventually the whole thing starts to hook up into one story but that was one of the more bewildering <laughs> memories yeah. of my childhood is what why what are we doing in utah and these people all have they're different people they don't have any of the same names and i you know i didn't know anything yeah jarring very jarring you know, and you went back to Holmes, uh, uh, was it 2018? That's uh... The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, I think is 2019, I could be wrong. I think, I think um, 2019, you're right. But I've now yeah. written five of them or six, six of them? I can't remember, because I have a new one coming out next fall called The Return of the Pharaoh. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, Homes in Egypt, 1911. Uh, there's some description of it, and the cover uh, is on my website. Okay. Yeah, and with you know um, the peculiar protocols. I mean, you had you had not written. I mean, you had left the character for almost. I think it was like probably 25 years. Something like that. Yeah. Um, well, I was busy. Um, I have always been interested in the subject of forgery, hmm. uh, perhaps because I'm a bit of a forger myself. If I'm forging Watson manuscript and, and forging Holmes or Doyle, whatever, then I am, then I am a forger. It, it purports to be something that it isn't, although I obviously ultimately ad admit. But if you are interested in forgery, it is not long before you stumble on the biggest, baddest, most pernicious 
forgery of all time, which is arguably <clears throat> the protocols of the learned oh. elders of Zion. Of course. The, the forgery that simply won't die, that many people insist on believing it's true, no matter Absolutely. how often or how thoroughly it is debunked. Uh, I understand that one of the uh, cops at the Capitol on January 6th, when the Trumpists attempted their uh, treasonous takeover of the United States government, was carrying a copy of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which is also quoted by Vladimir Putin and taught in certain schools throughout the Middle East. And for those of your listeners who may be unfamiliar, you, you can Google the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. Henry Ford published all of them in his private newspaper, the Dearborn mm -hmm. Independent during the 20s. The protocols purport to be the minutes of a secret meeting of Jews uh, recording their plans to take over the world. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the protocols themselves turn out to have been a forgery. Uh, I, I don't mean a forgery, I mean, a, they were plagiarized by something else entirely. Um, I didn't know that, that's interesting. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was all something written 40 years earlier uh, about Napoleon III, the nephew of Napoleon. And they just crossed out Napoleon and stuck in the word Jew instead. Um, and <clears throat> these protocols were concocted, these secret minutes that never happened yeah. by the um, Okrana. And the Okrana was the secret police of the czar. This is about 1903. And th they, they were uh, created uh, to justify czarist pogroms against Jews right. in Russia, because as we, as the protocols tell us, these these Jews in these shtetls were secretly planning to take over the you know the world. I don't know exactly how that supposed to that work. Tracks. That tracks. Um, yeah. And and um, so once I started to learn about these things, I thought wouldn't it be interesting to have Sherlock go up against them and, or, or find them out or expose them or something. And it, it took me a very long time to sort of like 10 years of thinking about this. So it, it could have been 13 years instead of 23 years if I got my act together a little faster. But there is a guy um, who published a book and his, his name is Stephen Zipperstein. Wow. And Stephen Zipperstein is a professor at uh, Stanford. And he published a book called Pogrom, which talks about the role the protocols played in these czarist massacres. And a guy named Will Eisner, who's oh. a comic book, he made a whole a graphic novel about the protocols. I think it's called The Plot. And these two things sort of came together and it was, as I say, 10 years, because I, I think slowly um, that ultimately became 
my revisit uh, after 26 years to Sherlock. Yeah. And then just by coincidence, my agent says, well, why don't you put him in Egypt next? And so that's the new one. That's great. Wow. And um, the Egypt, uh, when would you say, what's the release date on that? Or I just, It's fall of this year, I believe. Okay. I think just... it was supposed to be earlier, but the COVID, you know, backed everything up. Yeah. I, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and Mr. Spock seem to have uh, some things in common. I mean, uh, certainly very, very different, but uh, I, I, I like their cerebral energy. Uh, that's... Uh, well, I've, uh, in Star Trek VI, I went so far as to intimate that they were related. That's right. That's right. I'd forgotten that for a second. Uh, yeah, he says, an ancestor of mine once maintain yeah. that when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And everybody in the movie theaters always howls so you know where the Sherlockians are. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't believe I forgot that for a second. Although I, I have to, you know, I have to ask you what, uh, you, you really hurt me on my Shakespeare quiz in high school because uh, the undiscovered country, isn't that, uh, isn't it death, not the future? Yes, I, well, I multi-purposed it, but first of all, the, the Wrath of Khan was originally to be titled The Undiscovered Country because right. it was dealing with the death of Spock. But that kind of spoiler right there, right? Um, I, I mean, and, as a title, it would have kind yeah, of- Yeah, for the, for the two people on earth who haven't seen the movie. <laughs> um, no, no, I meant back then, I don't mean now. I meant- Oh, well- doesn't that kind of suggest that somebody's going to die? I just always thought, I think, it was, I think Chris Walken once said to me, he thought that was a great title, you know, The Undiscovered Country. And, and I, I agreed with him. And so then I stuck it on the second Star Trek script, uh, the one that I wrote. And then while I was filming, I learned that Paramount had changed the title and that we were now being called the Vengeance of Khan. Hmm. And I remembered calling the guy up and saying, uh, you do know that George Lucas is making a movie called The Revenge of the Jedi. Good luck. <laughs> and, and I said, don't, you know, doesn't Paramount do a lot of business with George Lucas over the Indiana Jones franchise? Do you think he's going to be really happy with the vengeance of, of Khan. Um, and he said, oh, I assure you that won't be a problem. And a week later, you know, <laughs> we were the wrath of Khan and he had changed from revenge to the return of the yeah. Jedi. Yeah, because of the, uh, the the Jedi would never seek revenge. It's, it's not enlightened. It's not enlightened. Um, so you just, you, you carried Undiscovered Country forward um, that, that's yeah, and I used it in, in Star Trek VI because I thought, okay, so now it doesn't refer to death; it refers to the future. Big deal. Yeah, well, it's such a, it's such a great, uh, great title. You're right; it absolutely is great. And 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 um, Paramount hated it. They said, "Oh, we think it's soft," and I said, "You know, you think it's soft, but you've already already had." the last frontier, the ultimate, the final, the people are, you know, they're not paying attention anymore. It, <laughs> you know, throw them a, throw them a curveball. Yeah. That's funny. It's like when um, I, I'm not a very big Phil Collins fan, but I had to give him credit that when he went on tour once, 
he called it the first final farewell tour. Um, <laughs> I gave him points for uh, candor on that one. Um, but uh, the uh, it's it's uh, the literary references are uh, are appreciated. But I think really that that one, uh, I, I think if anything, it shows your stubbornness to hold on to a good idea, which I actually, as a writer, I really respect. The older I get, the less sure I am of the things I'm stubborn about. Uh, everything seems more malleable. When you're young, the world seems very clear. It's all in black and white. There's good guys and bad guys, and you know what's right, and you know what's wrong. And then the, the older I get, the more confused I'm becoming as yeah. to what is good, what is bad, what is desirable. I mean, I still have all my marbles and I don't think my fundamental values have changed. Some people, you know, who start out sort of wild and radically and they grow up and they become increasingly conservative. And I've always been more or less who I am, you know, by the age of I don't know, 13 or something. I think I really changed, but I'm, I'm less assertive about, I'm more open to thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, let me listen to some more of that. You know, but there are certain things where you go, wait a minute, you voted for Trump? No, <laughs> this is not possible, guy. I can't, I can't deal. Yeah, shades of gray, but not, not, not crazy. Let's not get crazy. Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I wanted to tell you that I'm not sure I can think of a filmmaker that's made me go and pick up more books than you. Uh, and uh, oh, good. That, because that's what I do for a, that's, that's my form of exercise is reading. Yeah. Well, it's uh, and the book is a perfect technology, but I have more on my shelf because of you. And, and there's not a lot of filmmakers I can say that about. So Thank for you. what that's worth. Uh, and it's just been a treat to talk to you today. Uh, well, thanks and for finding time. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I have so many, uh, so many uh, things I've read and, and seen of yours that I find interesting. So, uh, but thank you for uh, always writing for yourself because you're smart. And a lot of people that don't write for themselves and they write for an audience, you were talking about that earlier. Yeah. I think a lot of times those are the people that dumb things down uh, because they think they're smarter than everyone else. And I really respect the people that write. They respect their audience and they, they, presume that the audience is intelligent uh, and it's it's well, I like I like books and movies and art that makes me feel smart even if I have to work hard a little bit to catch up I don't think of myself by the way as particularly smart but I do have a good memory and I do love to read so I just read a lot um, and you have good taste I don't worry so much about, you know, if I use a big word, I think, well, but you can look it up. You don't even have to reach for the book now. You just go on dictionary on your computer and boom. Um, I don't quite remember what my point was, but I'm sure <laughs> I made it. <laughs> well, it's a treat to talk to you and, and, uh, you. and uh, best of luck. And we'll be looking for the new book. And also folks should know that uh, your great memoir uh, the View from the Bridge, uh, which is about Star Trek and not about its wonderful life, just in case you're wondering what the bridge was. Uh, the View from the Bridge is uh, now available as an audiobook as well. Is that right? Yes, it, it is. Yeah. And as I say, there's a website that tells you about all this stuff. It's just called Nicholas Meyer 
com. Sounds good. Well, we know we'll put a link in our stuff. Uh, Thank you. And, and have a great day. You too. And thanks to all your staff as well. All right. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Well, we're now exiting Mindspace. You just heard from Nicholas Meyer, the director, writer, and producer, um, talking about his vast career of writing books, movies, directing films like Star Trek Wrath of Khan and The 7% Solution, and reminiscing about his friendship with Leonard Nimoy. It was really, really interesting having him on. I, I uh, thought, uh, you know, there's there a thing that happened with him and I, I, I was on stage with him once and I didn't bring it up this time because our conversation was so uh, rich already. Uh, there was about a hundred things I wanted to mention that uh, didn't come up, but I'm not sure I would have mentioned this one even if I did have time, just because um, I'm not sure what I would ask him about it, but I, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about it because I think it illustrates something interesting about uh, Nick uh, Meyer. He, uh, I was interviewing him once on stage uh, at a rapid con screening and asked him if he had any regrets, you know, about his uh, Star Trek time. And uh, his answer was uh, really, really interesting, I thought. He, he talked about um, an uh, exchange he had with Gene Roddenberry, uh, the creator of Star Trek, uh, and it was while uh, work was being done on Undiscovered Country, Star Trek VI, which, uh, which Nick directed. And uh, Gene Roddenberry was late in life at that point. And he pointed out uh, that uh, he, he didn't uh, like the, an exchange between two crew members of the Enterprise uh, it's meant to illustrate the divide between the humans and the Klingons. And it's a little aside. One crewman turns to another and says, oh, you know, uh, he, he comments on the way that the, the Klingons smell. And it was meant to, uh, you know, illustrate uh, a, a particular type of prejudice and bigotry. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, uh, the director wanted to keep it in. Um, and Roddenberry said, you know, in this future that Starfleet represents, you know, there's they're supposed to be have reached an ideal level of civilization where that that just wouldn't happen. Like he's like, you know, the failings of a an enterprise crew member might be one thing, but it wouldn't be that thing. And um, it doesn't. It's an interesting thing. Uh, it I I would think you could point to hundreds and hundreds of examples in the original series where crew members displayed behavior that wasn't perfect or, uh, you know, advanced and ethically uh, polished in every way. So, you know, it is what it is, but I, you know, you can see where both people are coming from um, uh, with Nicholas Meyer wanting to keep it in and, and Roddenberry wanting it out or changed. Um, but the thing that Meyer pointed out in that, on that day uh, on stage was that he said, you know, he really regretted the way he handled it, that he, it wasn't enough to be right, but he could have been decent about it, and uh, or at least uh, I think civil uh, was the way he put it. And uh, I only bring it up because I, I was so struck by that, um, by his humility in, in saying that on stage and his candor. Um, you know, in this he, this in modern life and really in human existence, it's hard to. Uh, highlight our failings and talk about our stumbles and talk about um, the things that we've done that, you know, we're not proud of. And to, to 
address it that head on, um, I thought really spoke highly of his character. Um, and it just really stuck with me. I, it wasn't a question he knew was coming. I could see that he thought of it, his answer on the spot. He didn't want to say that. You could tell it was reluctantly said, but uh, he, uh, he was honest and he was uh, forthright. And, and I was just really, really impressed by that. And so whenever I think of him, I always think of that um, particular exchange. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm not that far along in my life, so I've never had the experience of being the party that turns someone down or assumes ultimate authority, but I think that's a good cautionary tale that I'll definitely store in the future, especially because after listening to him talk and he was so kind to me, uh, Nick, Mr. Meyer. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it makes me feel better about how failure or what we think is failure or shortcomings, gaffes, yeah. <laughs> how those can take shape in the long run rather than the here and now. He mentioned cancel culture, you said. So, yeah. and I think especially given my age, uh, I'm mid twenties and growing up in the period in which I do, there's a lot of catastrophizing thought about mistakes. Um, sure. yeah. uh, <laughs> not just as okay. things to be reflected upon, but as things to consume you with dread or that, you know, there should be zero tolerance for. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there really is a feeling. It's like, um, like culture on the ledge, you know, like uh, if you just take one misstep, it's not just you get bruised. I mean, you're out, you know, like, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're uh, going to have to, you know, um, figure out a new career or something like that. That's the feeling that they, that is put upon um, you know, I think people's psyche when they, they contemplate cancel culture and then they are in themselves in some sort of, you know, uh, pursuit where they have public life, you know, of any, of any measure, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interestingly, at least in the very kind of hip to the culture, hip to the moment, discourse that happens in social media and was especially prevalent on my college campus was not just the guilt tripping over infractions that you may have made, but that the fear of guilt, the fear of being penalized or being canceled wasn't itself a form of bigotry. So you couldn't, not only was it unacceptable to make mistakes, but to fear being canceled for your mistakes was also seen as a manifestation of your internal problems, uh, which I can kind of see, you know, of course yeah. you can be overly paranoid that, you know, oh, I'm going to get, you know, called out for this or that, which, which yeah. makes sense or, or view a certain group as just looking for, um, things to be irascible about but 
Yeah. It, yeah. it was a very strange environment that I'm glad that I left because it there was a very kind of uh, French Revolution air about it or, you know, Soviet Russia. Like, you know, if if you never make a mistake, then you shouldn't be afraid, should you? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, the complete opposite yeah, right. of of casting the the parable of casting stones it was for sure and, yeah. so, and they move the goalpost you know that's the thing too is like you can be judged after the fact when you know not appropriate to time you know um or you know judged in a vacuum that really isn't realistic uh you know in the public public arena but uh yeah it's a uh, strange strange stuff but did um, that occupy any part in your mind when you agreed to do a podcast for heavy metal magazine <laughs> uh, because heavy metal is kind of notorious as a space where boundaries are transgressed even if that leaves a bad taste in many people's mouths yeah that's interesting um i didn't really didn't really factor into my mind you know um it's, I, I, I sort of think that um, you have to, the only thing I can speak for is the name I have, me, you know? Um, so I don't really think of, think of it that way. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, the pressure I feel is just to live up to the work that I've done in the past and live up to the work of the people that I, I came up with and that taught me things and that, or that I've taught things too, just because of the, the sort of the, the matrix of responsibility and, and reputation that goes with that, you know. Um, but uh, I, I really kind of, uh, you know, I, I try to do. Well, I mean, th there's a reason that that story uh, about Nicholas Meyer, or that that moment, that sticks with me. I mean, that that's one of the instructive things that I found is that is, uh, you know, is to be forthright and and ethical and try to be high-minded um, and um, not put ego ahead of the job, you know, uh, mm -hmm. or ahead of the, the, the actual, you know, execution of the job. So, uh, but uh, this is a strange time. It is, uh, it is unusual. Mm -hmm. Everything's uh, up in the air and uh, there's so much churn in journalism and in media in general and it's all reshaping, but I think it, that makes it especially important to, to talk about these things because the, the rules are, are going to be, you know, uh, changed again and again. And uh, it's good for people to remember what what is really the uh, important things, you know, like what the, what the crux of these arguments are. Mm -hmm. um, I know you mentioned ego, and I think you and I, after... Mr. Meyer logged off, both expressed that when compared to his breadth of knowledge and especially regards to fields like old Hollywood or old adventure books that we both felt our own familiarity was kind of small in comparison. Right. Uh, I think I had to look up as we were talking a couple individuals that he mentioned and a couple you know producing companies and films sure. um so i was i was just kind of wondering what you do as a journalist when 
you're in strange waters with someone you're interviewing? Well, the main thing, you know, I, the difference between good and great is often what you don't do. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, what I try to remember is that uh, when you're, when in doubt, um, don't pretend to know something you don't because it just doesn't go well. You know, like cause, mm -hmm. uh, if someone, if, if uh, and, and I, I don't usually mind, like when he asked me about Anthony Boucher, I realized I did know that name. I just didn't put it together quickly enough. But, uh, you know, the, he asked if I knew it and I'm like, no, I, I don't. Because the idea of, you know, playing along like, oh, sure. And if, you know, the follow-up is, well, mm -hmm. what do you think of him? <laughs> you know, like, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know, I'll have to come up with an opinion. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's goes, that's so obvious, but uh, it goes back to, um, I learned some lessons early on in journalism. I, I was intimidated to ask questions if I didn't know the answers. And if you think about it, you know, that's, uh, it's okay to ask questions if you don't know the answer. You know, our job isn't to, or the job of the interviewer isn't to know everything that the person they're talking to knows, it's to ask them questions. So sometimes I actually like not knowing things because I think people can hear genuine curiosity in your voice when you, mm -hmm. you are truly curious. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to seem like you're ill-informed or, or disrespectful of the, the subjects by not, you know, being up to, you know, to speed as much as you can. Um, it's just a diff diff uh, difficult, uh, not difficult, it's just a balance. And uh, it depends on, on this context of the interview and the person and there's some stuff, um, you know, I've had to interview people about things, you know, about movies I've never seen um, and or books I haven't read. And, and that, you know, that's sometimes just happens with deadline journalism that, you know, I've done in the past. Um, I didn't go out of my way to tell them I hadn't read it or hadn't seen it, but I didn't, I don't think in some cases that they knew, mm -hmm. you know, um, but uh, it's okay to be in the dark. You just don't want to act like, you haven't ever been in the light. <laughs> yeah, I know you spoke a bit about his interactions with Leonard Nimoy and various people involved in Star Trek. Do you have any encounters? You mentioned having spoken to Nimoy a yeah, few Leonard, times. Do you have any memorable encounters with him or with any other um, characters or in, in the production world of Star Trek? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I interviewed Leonard um, numerous times, um, probably seven, uh, probably eight or nine times. Um, sometimes on the phone, I, I interviewed him at his house once, which was delightful, like one of the best days of my life. Really? Um, oh, tell us about of, it. Yeah, it was one of the best days of my professional life. Uh, it's when I was at the LA Times, and um, um, I had interviewed Leonard already for um, Star Trek, the 2009 one, the, you know, the uh, JJ reboot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I talked to him about Fringe as all. Also, I went up on the set of Fringe um, in Vancouver. Um, and then I had done a thing on, because I was such a fan of his, I did, I did a thing on his photography book as well, which was is one of his real passions. And, I think Nick Meyer mentioned that during the interview uh, today that, uh, you know, the photography uh, pursuits that Leonard had, and he was a very, very talented photographer. Um, 
and that that really Leonard really liked that that I had taken the time to do that story on one on his photography and and uh, you know I really was very proud of the article I think it was really really well written and I did a thing I brought him some photographs to when I met him for I had met him for lunch at the Four Seasons um, and I brought some photographs from the LA Times archive that uh, I had made copies of and I left the copies in the folders which have since been you know newspaper got rid of that photo archive they gave it away to UCLA I believe it might have been USC I think it was USC um, but uh, the the original photos in the file there was a bunch of Leonard in these different roles that he did like Leonard as Marco Polo Leonard as in on stage in Equus Leonard as Golden Myers you know husband Leonard as all these different roles and it was funny because it, it almost like it was like a series of bad fake beards <laughs> like some of them uh, and uh, but I brought there was one in there that was uh, really struck me and it was it was an LA Times photograph that was shot at the courthouse if I remember right the year was 1950 I'm not sure it was like uh, it's probably like 1960, but it might have been 58, 59, 60, somewhere in there. Um, but regardless, it was it was when uh, Nimoy had first come to town for, uh, to LA from Boston, and it was him at the courthouse, and it was he and another young actor, an actress actually, and they were signing contracts. And at that time, I think they were both 19 or 20, and you and L, in California you had to have. It had to be witnessed or there had to be special extra legal protection activated if a person was under a certain age and this was just a publicity staged uh, photo op uh, and you know it was promoting the fact that Leonard had this movie coming out uh, in which he played a boxer um, so this is way before Star Trek and he's just such a kid in this photo and so I took the original and I left a copy at the times and I gave the original to Leonard and I said, you know, this is probably the first time that anybody ever had a photo of you, in, you know, in your showbiz career. And he was so excited uh, when I gave it to him. And, and he had remembered, he said he hadn't thought about that, but he remembered at the time it was a very big deal for him. Um, mm -hmm. but then it, it kind of left his mind. I think that the fact that I did that, that gesture, uh, which now I've admitted publicly and we'll get in trouble for it now. Um, but, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. No, I'm just joking. I don't, it's not a problem. Uh, but I think that uh, he really, really appreciated it. And later, um, I interviewed him a few more times. And then when I got my own, when Hero Complex, which I did for the LA Times, the, that was the brand of all my Comic-Con related kind of culture stuff. I reached out to him um, and said, hey, they're giving me an online talk show. I'd like to come interview you for the show if I could. And he's like, absolutely, just come by the house. And I was like, I was shocked and I was so excited. And um, I went and uh, it was funny, Chris Hardwick of uh, The Nerdist, he heard that I was going, um, I told him um, and he was so excited for me that he came to the house and listened to the interview from outside the door just to listen to it. Um, and then, which I thought was really, it was actually very sweet the way he did it you know because you could tell he was very enthusiastic about it but he also didn't want to intrude but anyway yeah, I, I, i'm picturing sam from lord of the rings <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
so so I did this interview and and uh, you know in it uh, I got I it was one of the best interviews I'd ever done I think you know and uh, it's on YouTube uh, it's a two part video on YouTube and I get him to do a William Shatner impression which oh. was fun you know I I really was excited about you know getting him to do a, a Shatner impression because I just didn't think anybody had ever thought of that before. Um, and there's a moment that I really like where <clears throat> uh, we were talking about Twitter and Leonard uh, was talking about uh, his social media and he does it with uh, his granddaughter, I believe. And um, I said, you know, Leonard, I, I follow you on Twitter, but you don't follow me. <laughs> and he goes, ah, but Jeff, I'm aware of you. <laughs> and it was one of the coolest things that anybody ever said <laughs> i was like he's aware of me yay uh and he was just very very warm guy and uh i would interview him a couple more times um and i'll tell you the last time i saw him um i i had left the la times uh when i left the la times i've been there 21 years and i got kind of in a feud with this guy i was working for it and we had we weren't seeing eye to eye and and much like Nicholas Meyer, I could have handled it better. But anyway, uh, the thing is, is that uh, I, I decided that I just need to go somewhere new and I quit the times and I started to work for uh, Entertainment Weekly. Uh, I went to work for them right away. And um, once, uh, but uh, in the transition, there was only a couple of days in, in between really. Um, but I got a phone call from Leonard because he had heard I quit from the LA Times. And uh, he goes, Jeff, it's Leonard. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Hey, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you didn't even have to say your name. I could tell that voice. Um, he's like, I've heard you left the LA Times. Is that right? Said, yes. And I explained to him a little bit. There's a pause. He said, Jeff, I found out a long time ago that sometimes in life, you just need to tell people to fuck off. And I think this sounds like one of those times. If you need anything, you call me. Oh. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, about a month later, I called and said, Leonard, um, they're letting me do my own film festival over here to kind of uh, celebrate the same stuff I was celebrating with Hero Complex. He's like, where and when? And I said, well, it's gonna be at the Egyptian theater. And I gave him the dates and uh, he came. And uh, we sold out the place of 640 seats. J.J. Uh, Abrams and Zachary Quinto sent a nice taped introduction um, and brought Leonard out and he looked great. And he was so happy and funny. And, and uh, at the end of the night, uh, I said, you know, will you say it for them? And he stood up, he said, live long and prosper. <laughs> and that was the last time I saw him. Oh, yeah. what, what a dear, dear man. Oh, I, I love him. I absolutely love him. He was so good to me, you know, um, and so good and classy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm really proud of those interviews, you know, uh, which you can find on YouTube. And, and this isn't a taking a shot at Bill Shatner. I, like I said, I've interviewed Bill many times over the years, actually more times than Leonard. Um, but, you know, uh, at Leonard's house, when you walked, when I walked around, 
there was only one thing that had anything to do with Star Trek that was anywhere in sight. I mean, mm. there was these beautiful paintings. He had Kandinsky paintings. He had you know, Warhol. Really? Oh, oh my yeah. God. He, I love Kandinsky. He and his wife, wonderful champions of the arts uh, for many, many years. And they lived in Bel Air uh, in the same home from, you know, early, I believe the early 70s on. And they just, had, it was just such a wonderful place. And, and uh, uh, it was like him, just, you know, uh, really mm -hmm. bright and fascinating, fascinating. Uh, yeah, the vibes, the vibes are immaculate, as the kids say. Exactly. Uh, the only thing he had that was um, Starfleet would have been, uh, there was a, a cube, a glass box, and in it uh, looked like two uh, moldering biscuits, but they were uh, the ears that he oh, wore, yeah. one of the sets of prosthetic ears. Um, and, you know, you know, it, very, very different than going, like, to see, like, Bill Shatner's, like, surroundings, you know, where it's, like, overflowing with stuff like that, you know, um, that's not even a good example, but it, it's just the, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's what Meyer talked about with the center stage personalities versus the uh, vanishers or. Yeah. The, I'm not exact. Was that what he said? Vanishers or disappearers or? Yeah, you know, like well, there's yeah. the people that basically uh, like the signed portrait people, uh, yes. like, and then the uh, and the people who kind of submerge, like, and he, he mentioned Brando, and I was thinking like uh, Daniel Day Lewis would be the disappearer. Like, yes, you know, like you can't even find them sometimes, and uh, uh, you know you know, the opposite end, you know, would obviously be like a Brando type, uh, mm -hmm. who, you know, is, is just as big as the role he's playing, you know, but, uh, yeah, Leonard was fantastic. I, I, I'm so glad we got to do a little nod to him, um, mm -hmm. by having, uh, Nick Meyer on today. And, um, uh, I think it's really cool. The statue that they're putting in front of the science museum in Boston, which is one of the you know biggest and busiest science museums in the world. Uh, describe um, that to us just for the audience and I'm also unfamiliar with this. Yeah, it's uh, they've just announced it. Um, uh, you know, Leonard's children uh, very excited about it. Um, and it's the symbol, the Vulcan salute. It's a hand. It's going to be silver and shiny and cool looking. And it's uh, that familiar uh, hand gesture that, uh, you know, that Leonard um, uh, brought to the set of Star Trek while filming the episode Amok Time mm -hmm. and that uh, he himself uh, added because he felt like if you're meeting the leader of your civilization you should do something <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he, he didn't want to bow so he came up with uh, you know this uh, split finger flying V kind of shape uh, and uh, in a story that I wrote for the LA Times back when I met Leonard the first time he he told me the story of where he had come uh, come by that hand gesture which uh, was a uh, it's uh, it looks like the Hebrew letter s and it's mm -hmm. uh, represents uh, uh, the female aspect of God um, I believe and in Kabbalah and uh, he'd seen it in a synagogue in Boston when um, some of the um, Kabbalah uh, 
clergy were there and uh, the rabbis, they uh, were proceeding through uh, the ritual and everybody was instructed to avert their eyes, to cover their eyes, to not look that uh, this was part of a ceremony that was not even permitted to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, and Leonard said he peeked and that that's, what, and that's <laughs> what they were doing with their hands. And then uh, many years later when he was uh, making history on a science fiction show called Star Trek, that came back to him. And just like, you know, every single thing about the guy to me is just interesting and and fascinating and, and uh, I consider it just such an honor to have met him, uh, much less have these great interactions with him and have him uh, do things like that phone call, which, you know, I'll never forget, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have to ask because as my family was rewatching Khan to prepare, prepare for this episode, did you ever talk to Ricardo Montalban? You know, I never did. Okay, I just never had did. to ask for my mother who, I would love uh, was trying to disguise her crush on him <laughs> <laughs> she'll great. be listening to this episode my dad won't so it's okay well yeah you know i always i, I grew up with him on uh, fantasy island too you know mm -hmm. smiles everyone you know uh which was a uh, it's a quirky show you know um but he was a, he was a great actor and and he had done you know some really great movie roles uh through the years well before Khan, obviously, uh, but that's the one that, you know, it's, it's, it's the signature one. It's interesting the way things follow people, you know? Yeah. I mean, just the visual impression of those bangs is just <laughs> oh, in the yeah. glittery veil. It's, it's something else. It's really, I know, found it, I found it striking rewatching it, how he just exudes this. It's his mo. Yeah, and and the fact that his costume was designed to have such a deep chest. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the Starfleet members as they're going to and from and as one conflict will leave them disheveled and they move back into the main space, they're constantly rebuckling their chests um, and the flap in the front uh -huh. of their uniform. It's like this, I'm not exactly sure, we'd have to, oh, well, he's he's done with this episode, but uh, I would love to have learned if it was intentional or or subconscious the oh, the way that they mirror and foil each other in their you know their mannerisms and their fashion. Yeah, the button down versus the uh, the uh, the busting out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I didn't know as a kid that 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 was a prosthetic chest he was wearing. I don't think it was. I think it was, yeah. Oh, okay. I I just I just read that that there oh, really? were rumors that it was prosthetic, but that oh. he was actually in really good shape and okay. Well, then, really, you know I, just I had uh, pecs that were. What's the adjective form of like Michelangelo? Like he really <laughs> did have the Michelangelo pecs. Yeah, uh, Michelangelian. I don't know. I, yeah, that one. That's a little tough. Um, no, you know what, I, I shouldn't say, I, uh, I learned a long time ago to not to do what I just did, which is like things that you don't know if they're true, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a prosthetic, um, um, but I, you know, I haven't ever asked 
Nicholas Meyer that maybe because deep down I just don't want to know the truth maybe, <laughs> maybe it's better to not know but uh, mm-hmm. uh I, it's funny the, the last time I saw Ricardo Montalban was in uh, on in a film I mean uh was with Dick Powell uh which is a big topic today which is funny I haven't seen all that many Dick Powell movies but um I saw him with um the John Sturgis uh movie uh Right Cross mm-hmm. so it's random but uh, yeah, Ricardo Montalban, you know, Pride of Mexico, the guy's amazing. Um, yeah, I think it's was a stroke of divine genius. I was gonna say luck, but luck doesn't seem to cover it that he with such a classically trained inflection was able to find the script written by Meyer because when he delivers those lines from Moby Dick and any line that he has in that movie, they're so literary and so Byronic that the combination is extraordinary. Sure. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, and, and Montalban had a stage career, you know, he did Mm -hmm. King and I in the sixties, you know, uh, Yul Brynner is of course the signature performer in that, but, um, uh, you can really see Montalban like kind of sinking his teeth into that. Um, uh, and yeah, you know, there, Star Trek, I don't know if there's ever been a, uh, a franchise that's in, you know, with this kind of uh, stamina that doesn't really have any major villains. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, the comic books with Batman, Spider-Man, where they have, you know, mm-hmm. 18 fascinating villains to fight with you know i mean you get star trek you get factions you know you get the klingons as pretty much as mm-hmm. a group um but you don't really get too many individuals i mean you know you get down three or four you you get you're already you know down to harry mud you know um so it's not exactly uh, the joker and you know riddler and Catwoman, you know et cetera mm-hmm. et cetera but, um, yeah, you're talking about groups versus individual personalities. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's a real challenge. I think I think it's been one of the challenges of the Star Trek films because I think that the films, I think they've been sustained, but I think there's a lot of them that people have uh, think like not the greatest movie or you know like I think that it's a it's the the biggest successes in the. Um, in the Star Trek universe on the big screen, Nick Meyer is a common link in them, uh, you know, uh, 246. Uh, and then I think, you know, JJ's the first JJ film, which I, I thought was fantastic. Um, but, um, you know, one of the challenges along the line has been trying to come up with, you know, the big bad. You know, you look at the Star Trek generations where. Malcolm McDowell, you know, who mm-hmm. names keep his name keeps popping up, but you know, had been in Clockwork Orange and and so many great films, and um, you know, he's the guy that offed Captain Kirk. Sorry, spoiler, um, but it it was like the most unsatisfying <laughs> death scene ever. I mean, Malcolm himself says it, it was like uh, it was a scaffold accident. Like that's not very dramatic. Oh. It felt you know like um, I I. I to me, it's like the only um, major hero who's killed off in something that could be a workman's claim, uh, workman's comp claim. You know, it doesn't <laughs> even feel like a, a, a fight. So, um, 
and I, I think you know there's there's something to the fact that uh, they you know it's you know it's not about villains and, and beating the bad guy. I mean, Star Trek's about exploration and and overcoming challenges on the scene and and trying to find harmony where there is none. Mm -hmm. um, so that you know you don't. It's hard to have bad guys that you know they're just showing up and fighting and showing up again and again and again. So it, it makes sense why it's geared differently. Uh, but yeah, the, and the, I mean, having a singular big bad can have its pitfalls too. Looking at, I think yeah. the most recent Star Wars movie, Episode Nine. Uh -huh. um, I remember being in the theater when they brought back Palpatine, and there were some guttural groans. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, the, yeah, yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, can, the yeah. fact that the villain is not allowed to die uh, for fear yeah. of not having a motivating antagonist yeah exactly you know and and you know you look at like the joker like now what's left for that character like you know as far as going to the well so many times like you feel like that you know uh, i'm sure there'll be a lot more great stuff with that character but mm -hmm. it, at some point you wonder if you know um it's overshadowing Batman himself at this point. Yeah, the Harley Quinn animated series is doing some really funny things with the Joker. They've returned him to a camp villain. Yeah, yeah. So and and uh, and boys, that show disgusting. I like it. But, <laughs> goodness, um, but uh, it's uh, good stuff. There's so many different uh, elements to it. But I guess yeah, multiple and you know. He's the signature villain in, in, in the Star Trek universe. Um, I always wanted to do an interview with Malcolm McDowell and Benedict Cumberbatch together because I know both of them and like them both so much because they're they, you know they have in common is that they both killed Kirk. Hmm. Yeah. So the only guys. I'll put a word in with heavy metal exec. Maybe we can make that happen. Sure. Sure. Um, well, this has been a good day. Uh, I think that we've uh, we're into the well beyond Federation space at this point, though. Mm -hmm. We're <laughs> going to meet the Borg at some point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we're testing the limits of the space-time continuum as well. But uh, um, we got it's another... mind space. There are no limits. That's right. That's right. Exactly. In in the uh, in the podcast, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> uh, although they wait. Can. <laughs> yeah, wait, there you go. Ah. Um, but I'm excited, uh, and we have we'll, um, we have another filmmaker coming back next week. And we won't say who, but uh, I'm excited that we're going to have back-to-back -back directors. Um, and uh, I hope everybody out there will join us. And I hope you had uh, a good time today in Federation Space. All right, thank you so much. This has been Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Live long and prosper. Thank you.